1: Thanks to PhysicianLoans.com for helping support free open access medical education and the Study Smarter series. Medical students and doctors have unique needs when it comes to buying a home, so whether you're a medical student about to start residency or are a bit further along in your career, the team from PhysicianLoans Loans will help you both navigate the complexities of the home buying process and secure the financing you need. PhysicianLoans.com
0: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman.
1: We are back for the Step 1 Study Smarter series with repeat guest Dustin Williams from Online MedEd. Today, we're going to go through both a little bit about question strategy for Step 1 and then cover some endocrine-related topics uh, for the test. So, Dustin, thanks for coming back.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. I like I like this podcast. We're well, probably going to do a few more after this.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I would be so honored. How's the cat doing?
2: The real cat is doing great. I'm, she's a little lonely with all my travels, but the uh, the online med-ed cat's doing fantastic. <laughs> we actually just hired a marketing firm, and uh, the dude who runs it loves cats. So I'm finally winning the war between Jamie and I there's definitely going to be more cat. The only decision we have to make is, are we going to make her humanoid, where she's like going to walk on two legs but still be a cat, or is she going to be on all fours and actually be a cat? So the discussion has moved from, will there be more cats? Of course there will. To, is it going to be humanoid or feline and not in <laughs> her animation? Yeah, I'm excited. So
1: I think uh, the listeners should tweet you guys at online meta to weigh in on
2: that. That's a great idea. I didn't even think of that. Yes. So it just came out in a marketing meeting today. So I'm stoked. It's a great idea.
1: All right. Let's get into this. What do you do? What did you do when you were preparing for step one? How did you approach questions? Do you have a systematic approach or do you just kind of take it as it goes?
2: Um, to be honest, uh, I actually studied using the Kaplan videos and um, I could not bear to stand Golian. So I couldn't use Golian and Pathoma didn't exist. So <laughs> step one, new world, Kaplan videos, and that actually did really well for me um, because I was able to practice. And at the time, I did it wrong, right? I did it the way everyone else does, which is read the vignette, read the question, read the answers. I've learned since then how questions are written and therefore how you should actually take them. And I've actually created a method for success. It's um, on online med ed, the next level methods for success. It's a free video. There's no um, paying content. It's all free stuff to, to read about. And it's basically what I learned from um, Jeff Weiss. He made us write questions as a means of teaching residents how to take board style questions. And actually it was really interesting to to figure out the methodology. And and I don't say this to brag, I say it to prove a point. And even my residents at the internal medicine residency program in Baton Rouge still won't do it my way. I think they think because it sounds stupid. But um, I took my ABIM board exam and finished in two and a half hours. And I'm board certified, so I passed. (laughs) <laughs> it's a nine hour test, right? And, you know, by the time some of my classmates that just graduated residency with me were taking their first break, I was leaving. And yeah, I, you know, I studied a lot. And yeah, I worked hard and online med it. So yeah, I know a lot of stuff, but it's not the knowledge that helps you. What I learned was how to write a question. And therefore I learned how to take a question. And I'd actually like to spend a couple of minutes just explaining it.
1: Absolutely. That is the whole reason I call us inside the boards because the goal is to teach students to think like question writers because I myself was eh, a mediocre test taker a standardized test taker and then once I started writing and then editing like thousands of questions there's a certain facility you get in answering questions even apart from knowing the content and despite the NBME and NBOME trying to avoid having questions that can be answered or answer choices that can be whittled down through test wiseness. There still is a lot of test wise principles that you can learn to improve, I think, your your score. Focusing, I guess, on the the how more than yeah. just the what. So yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it.
2: And actually I, I think that the I hate the USMLE that it's used as a way of getting people into residency and like valuing a human or a doctor against each other. But I do think that the USMLE actually does a really good job. If you're going to standardize and automate a test taking process for physicians, they do a pretty good job, right? Because there are no accepts, no nots, no multiple choice, no, I mean, multiple right answers, no all of the aboves. So if, there is some test wiseness, right? Because all the questions have to be written under the same principles, it makes it so it's, it, it's, Easy to get good at taking the test, and we actually have this in our shelf ste- and step prep guide, which is also free in online meta. It says that uh, – how do I want to say this? Uh, you have to train your mental faculties just like a competitive athlete will train the rest of their body, right? If a boxer gets in the ring and all they've done is j- skip rope, they don't have the strength, the ability to box to keep up. But if they don't do the jump rope, then they're not going to have the endurance to stay in the ring. And part of test-taking is doing the thing that you're going to take, like you have to train for the test. Yeah. In doing so, hopefully you learn all stuff along the way, but you have to train for the test, and that, that's, that's part of the game. And unfortunately, if you want to do well, or if you're doing poorly and just want to pass, you can actually get a bunch of points just by playing the game right, training for the test. So um, the way we, we write questions, and, and you can chime in with your own experience here, basically what happens is you start with an educational objective, right? the thing you want to test. Yep side effect of beta blockers. And then um, you write the question, not the vin- not, not the stem, not the vignette, but the question. Yeah,
1: the actual interrogatory.
2: Right. Like what what's the side effect of beta blockers? But then you know, that's a single order question and all the step questions are, are, are hinge questions. So you ask it differently. What medication is likely to cause the side effect? You have to identify the side effect first and then it's basically asking the same question. What's the side effect of beta blockers? And then the person dictates the right answer, beta blockers. And then they will put in other answers that sound right, that could be correct if you alter the vignette in a certain way, that makes all the other answers correct. And they'll choose answers that sound like, or at least might potentially, if all you use is a word association just by doing flashcards instead of actually linking things together, you might recognize a word and associate it, but it's actually wrong. That's a really good distractor. Right, And so... Um, What I try to do actually is as I coach these questions, I say, if you can change the vignette to make the other answers right, you know, that's that's how you know you've mastered the content. So they've chosen educational objective. They've chosen a right answer. They've chosen the the, the hinge questions they're going to ask and all the wrong answers. And then you write the vignette. Right. (laughs) You can take a question that's testing what's the side effect of a beta blocker and compare it to another of other medications. And if you just know what's the side effect is the question, then you just go through and know the other side effects. So if it's hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, and amlodipine. Well, thiazide diuretics cause hypo. Hyperkalemia. ACE inhibitors cause hyperkalemia, and calcium channel blockers cause peripheral edema. I, as a question writer, can just write a huge vignette, like blah 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 blah. Has bradycardia. Blah 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 blah. blah. Right. The blah 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 is there to throw you off. But the other the other cool thing about step one and step two, which is that they don't throw curveballs on step one and step two. Right. So all that blah 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 is actually legit. Right. So there's a hinge question, and the blah 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 in there is really relevant material. And I
1: think one of the important things to keep in mind for students, because a lot of people will get an answer wrong, say on a practice question in their Q bank, and they'll think, ah, see, they tricked me. I think drilling down to the reason why someone thinks that is really a, a part of learning what good test-taking skills uh, comprise and, and knowing not just like the, you know, what is the side effect of the beta blocker? That's not going to be an actual interrogatory. It's, it's learning to discern what is actually being asked in the question, like, can you sum it up in a giant vignette that says, you know, which of the following is a side effect? I guess the other thing is with the boards. Question writers are advised not to include irrelevant material that that makes a question difficult because of of irrelevant like difficulty. So even though a lot of those vignettes are ridiculously long, each thing in there is designed to help you learn to discern and cut through the crap, essentially, train your clinical judgment. So every time I would say you have that sense of, oh, man, they were trying to trick me. Those are the really important questions you should mark in your review and really drill down, find out why you got it wrong, because you probably can come on to some principle that that will help you apply to different questions.
2: I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly true. I don't give this lecture anymore because I'm too busy, but I would go around the country giving acing the wards how to present a case and why board exams matter and was always targeted to schools right as they were approaching step one. And the whole point was that even though it feels like you're studying useless material like the Krebs cycle that you're never going to talk about again, at the same time, in that vignette, they're g- giving you practice patience. You don't even know it's happening. Right. And as you said, like, they, they don't include erroneous information. They don't have four and a half pages to do an H&P. <laughs> so when they say something's positive, it means something. And definitely they don't have you know, eight and a half pages to do a negative review of the system. So when they say something's not there or it's negative, they're taking the time to tell you That means that that is going to be really necessary to the hinge question. It it might just be to a diagnosis that you then need to hinge to, or they might really be pushing you away from one of the distractors. And it's really useful. So if they take, you know, if they say the usual stuff, the age, the race, the gender, and past medical history, kind of ignore that stuff, right? But then if there's... Talking about the physical exam or the vital signs, or even if it comes down to preclinical science stuff, if they mention something that's positive or more so when they say it's negative, you're going to hone in on that. And that's actually the strategy I use, right? So I've read the question. I've read the answer choices. I'm already scanning the, the vignette. I don't care about the blah, blah, blah. I'm looking for the things that I need. Yeah. from those answer choices. And just to just to illustrate this again, same question about beta blockers. If you've got three other medications there, well, I'm looking for other side effects. If you've got drug classes, class one through four antiarrhythmics, well, then it refocuses what you're going to be talking about. And to illustrate this concretely, I know everyone's had this experience unless you've been doing the strategy from the beginning. You go through a vignette, and you're like yeah i got this you're like highlighting left and right like you 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 got the answer right you got the diagnosis get to the bottom and it's like
1: oh that's not wait, what they're what? asking
2: <laughs> right what yeah what's wait wait what right so if you've had that experience that's exactly what you you've done it wrong you try to guess what the question's going to be by going through the vignette, and so your brain focuses on all these things that you think are awesome, and you get to the end, and you don't need it.
1: So I guess the first principle then is really to to start with what the question writer themselves begins with, and that is the educational objective, right? Not to go the other way around.
2: Exactly. If you can start thinking like the person who wrote the question by reading the question first, try to figure out what universe you're in: cardiology, nephrology, dermatology, psych, whatever. And then, if you can deduce the educational objective by the answer choices, the question's going to take two seconds. You're already done.
1: All right. What else on uh, your approach to questions? So, start with the interrogatory. Look at the answer choices. Then go back to the vignette.
2: Yeah, and then highlight only the things that relate to your answer choices. Right? The the positive and negatives, uh, the, the negatives, regardless of what you think. The other thing is people get trapped. Right? They they see one element. Of a disorder or of, of an illness script that they think is really relevant. And then they have all this other competing information. It's actually almost true of what people do in real patients, right? That's a heuristic where people lock in an answer and then block out everything else.
1: Yeah. Jerome Groupman talks about that and how doctors think. Now I forget what the uh, that particular heuristic is called, but
2: anchoring, anchoring. anchoring yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so you make a decision early on and you stick with it. And then just, and I've actually had people email me or write um, in the discuss boards about a question and they, they lament that they thought I, I tricked them, just as you said. And it was, <laughs> no, I mean, you, you had all of this other competing information and then this one piece, which does fit into the illness script scripture, this, this, this disease that we're talking about. It also fits into the one that you thought it was, but the other four elements are all there that point you away from it. Because
1: it's a single best answer, right? right? Yeah,
2: that, that's indeed, yes. Which I I actually, that's why I I think the USMLE, if it's going to be automated, it's actually doing it very well. There's only one right answer. And regardless, if you think you would do all the things or it might be two or three, there is only one right answer. And you actually have to read. That's why you read the question first. It may not be what's the next step. It may be what's the best diagnostic test. It may be what's the most common cause of death. Not what kills people, but what's the most common cause. Not give the beta blocker. It's arrhythmia in 24 hours, right? So you have to make sure you answer the question that they're asking. And if you read the question first, it's never even an issue, right? Like, you know what the question is. So like you, you don't even get distracted by superfluous information in the vignette. Should we go through some and apply your methodology here? All right, put me to the test. Giving me step one content. Yep. Let's see if the master educator test taker can match mental wit with step one.
1: (laughs) And I will say that even though this podcast does take a ridiculous amount of time to edit sometimes, Dustin has not looked at any of the questions that I'm going to give him. He is doing this like A third-year medical student on July 1st, standing up before a Grand Rounds audience of attendings getting pimped on like surgery principles. (laughs) Except today we're doing endocrine.
2: Ready to go. I'm excited.
1: All right, so first, a 16-year-old girl comes to the emergency department because of a panic attack. She began feeling tingling around her mouth and then became nervous, causing her to hyperventilate. The tingling has persisted, and she also reports having had muscle cramps and spasms for the past week. A metabolic panel reveals normal electrolytes except for a low serum calcium. A review of the patient's chart reveals thyroid surgery one month earlier due to a suspicious nodule. Which of the following findings is most likely to also be present in this patient?
2: All right, don't read him. Don't read him. Don't read him. Don't read them, don't All read them. right. What's most likely to be found in the, the the following? What else is likely to be found? We had thyroid surgery, low calcium, and she's got tingling of the perioral area and muscle cramps, right? She's got hypocalcemia. I thought first it was going to be a panic attack and. I was looking for stuff about albumin and low CO2, but then she's got perioral tingling. They tell you low calcium and thyroid surgery. She's had a parathyroidectomy, so I'm looking for uh, low PTH. So maybe we're going to get into basic science stuff, and then or physical exam findings like Chevostek sign and Trousseau sign. So let's read read the answer choices. Too <laughs> you are see how so like
1: nervous because like you know all this clinical stuff for hypocalcemia <laughs> because you're a doctor, but this is step one content. You never know what's yeah get really.
2: Threatened. I never know. All
1: right. Read me Uh, the answer
2: choices. Let's see.
1: Here they are. A, low parathyroid hormone. (laughs) B, low thyroid stimulating hormone. C, high calcitonin. D, high parathyroid hormone. Or E, high thyroxin.
2: That would be a really easy question if we did the method. If you read the question first, I would see those options and see, okay, there's thyroid and calcium stuff. And then I just go to the vignette, and as soon as I see thyroid surgery, that's like the buzzword, right? If you accidentally take out the parathyroids and you remove the thyroid, it's anatomy. You're going to tank the production of PTH, and low PTH leads to low calcium. Um, the decreased TSH, decreased TSH is always backwards, right? Decreased TSH would actually mean hyperthyroidism, right? That would be um, what they are expecting there is a low T4, which would cause an increased TSH because of the thyroid surgery.
1: So let's look at that. So B, low thyroid stimulating hormone. You might think, okay, so the patient had thyroid surgery, so they're probably trying to tell me her thyroid's out. Right. So, two errors here. One, not, I guess, thinking through where does thyroid stimulating hormone right. come from because it actually comes from the anterior pituitary. Right. So, that would be wrong in and of itself. But I could see how somebody could easily make that mistake if they were just kind of scanning a question and didn't really think through what was, you know, being uh, mentioned. And, You see thyroid surgery, think no thyroid, but if you don't read the whole of the answer choice, thyroid stimulating hormone, there is a potential you could get it wrong.
2: Although actually there's a real, I mean, there's, there's one option that's elevated T4 and another one that's low TSH. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, those are immediately out, right? They mean the same thing, right? Like, they're Correct. if they're not associated together, like, those two can just be eliminated right away by test-taking strategy. Uh, and actually, a decreased PTH and an increased PTH is the other option. Those I mean, You've narrowed it down to the, the two there. And calcitonin is a medication that you give. I mean, I don't even know how that works into basic science. Like, uh, literally, we get right down to low, low PTH and high PTH, and you just got to know the anatomy of the parathyroid. So, uh, essentially,
1: after thyroid surgery, uh, calcitonin would likely be decreased, um, or, or unchanged since it's produced by the parafollicular cells, uh, of the thyroid gland.
2: Yeah, well, sure. Um, yeah, definitely. That's, I, I believe you. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. I have, sure. I have
1: some notes on this, so that is <laughs> not coming from my memory, but, uh, but I guess I could see, so whenever I looked at like questions when I was writing them or reviewing those from um, like feedback from users in the QBanks I worked on, we'd often see like, okay, uh, 60% or 70% of students key answer A, low parathyroid hormone in um, as the correct one, okay? If it were 100%, then we'd scrap that question because that question is too easy. If it were Five percent. That question might be too hard. Uh, it needs or you're, edited, you're,
2: or you wrote. Yeah, you wrote it yeah. wrong. Uh, because yeah.
1: it's confusing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but. After usually not always, but usually you can see that the there is a not necessarily like an even spread amongst choices for the other distractors. There's usually like the correct answer is most often keyed as correct by uh users taking or approaching a question, but then there's another distractor that gets like second place as far as as, Mm -hmm. um choosing goes, and I, I tend to call that the most attractive distractor. And it's less clear in, in this particular question, but I would say if you were scanning this quickly, perhaps, and, and, Maybe you hadn't, you were sick during your endocrine block uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. during second year. And you read this question, you might think, okay, panic attack, right? They always say in behavioral science mm-hmm. or psychiatry, right. you know, make sure you check the thyroid because um, hyperthyroidism can be an organic cause of panic type symptoms, including tachycardia. So I could see somebody thinking, oh, okay, so this is probably something related to thyroid. The thyroid was operated on but all of that would be untrue so i guess that thyroid surgery is not really a red herring it's essential but not because the surgery is on the thyroid but like you said because the anatomy of the parathyroid glands
2: they didn't give the calcium it'd be a much harder question and i think that if the tsh was elevated was one of the options along with increased thyroxine that would I think would be actually a better question because the tsh should go up after thyroid surgery but you don't know how much it's going to go up how soon and, and maybe they poked the wrong thing so the thyroxine could be up the fact that they gave you low calcium in thyroid surgery just makes like the pth it's like the pth right? like that's like um the the vignette was all that blah 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 i talked about right like the perioral right. tingling was great but like blah 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 low calcium thyroid surgery I was done. My parathyroidectomy. Uh, and this is what I mean when I said I could take my ABIM exam in two and a half hours because I, I, I would do this, right? Like I would just hone in on the... Now, I probably got some wrong because...
1: No one's perfect.
2: Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, like, I, I mean, I didn't... It wasn't like, oh, I don't know. I just, you know, I picked what I thought the answer was. I probably was distracted a couple of times, but overall, it didn't matter because I passed. Let's move on. Next one. A
1: 27-year-old woman, Gravita 1, para 1 comes to the OB clinic because of agalacteria, fatigue, cold intolerance, hair loss, and unintentional weight gain for the past year. She had placenta accreta during her first pregnancy with an estimated blood loss during the delivery of 2,000 cc's. Which of the following is the most likely cause of her symptoms?
2: I mean, I know the answer already too, right? She's got uh, placenta accreta, blood loss, pregnancy. It's going to be Sheehan syndrome dysfunctional uh, pituitary gland. So I'm going to look for low levels of the anterior pituitary and high levels of the secondary organ, or low, low, sorry, low, 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 and low. Right, so low TSH, low T4, low ACTH, low cortisol. Let's see what happens.
1: All right, so which of the following is the most likely cause of her symptoms? The answer choices are A, Addison disease, <laughs> B, Cushing syndrome, C, Hashimoto thyroiditis, D, pituitary adenoma, or E, Sheehan syndrome.
2: You are correct. (laughs) All right, good, good. Um, But this is actually really hard, um, you know, because Addison's, I'm, I'm surprised they use eponyms. I thought we're getting away from that. Um, Addison's disease is a primary, uh, adrenal deficiency where you're going to have, um, n- not enough cortisol be produced because of
1: a lack of all
2: the, the, uh,
1: adrenal. So no mineralocorticoids, glucocorticoids
2: or androgens. Right. So Addison's like, cramps out and that's actually could be with the huge hemorrhage. 2000 CCs is a lot. So I guess you could think you might uh, have killed off the adrenal glands, but I'd be going after, um low blood pressure from the low cortisol and maybe some potassium abnormalities they probably have to give you potassium abnormalities if they really wanted you to go after addison's even though it's not actually the common presentation cushing's is too much cortisol that's weird i mean i, I think that if you thought that she was associated with the pituitary adenoma maybe you might think cushing's syndrome or cushing's disease but you, uh, hypertension diabetes hypertension hashimoto's i think was close because fatigue cold intolerance weight gain but Hashimoto's is an autoimmune destruction of the thyroid, which wouldn't have anything to do with uh, the pregnancy. And as soon as you said G1P1, I was like, Sheehan yeah. syndrome in my head. <laughs> exactly. If they, g- if they give you G1P1 and, and it's like a uh, after delivery, it's it's, it's going to be one of the complications there. Yep. Um, and then... Pituitary adenome. If you just got to that one and didn't read all the answer choices, that's technically not wrong. Sheehan syndrome is uh, you know a huge hemorrhage after after delivery, and that causes uh, essentially... Necrosis of the pituitary, but yeah,
1: and I think that you bring up another good point too. So yes, they are trying to go get away from uh, eponyms, but all right, one thing when you you study that you have to keep in mind is know what uh, entities are called, like all their names. So E Sheehan syndrome also sometimes referred to as pituitary apoplexy. You could even just descriptively hemorrhagic necrosis of the of the pituitary gland. Like know what the entity is, especially if there is some notable eponym that it's going to be hard to get away from, like Cushing's syndrome. Like everybody knows Cushing's syndrome is, you know, excess cortisol and you know, looking at a person with hypertension, central obesity, buffalo hump, poor wound healing, moon faces—that was always my
2: favorite. Which means acne, by the way. I don't think anyone ever explained that meant they're fat and have acne and wow. stretch marks. And I was like, you're purple strie, moon faces. What does that mean?" <laughs> It's fat and have
1: acne. Isn't that like so many things in medical education, though? Like I, uh, we interviewed uh, Emily Tan, who is an ortho resident and heads up white coat coaching. And she was walking me through <laughs> fracture uh, names like green stick fracture or a, a night stick fracture. And I didn't realize that these terms actually kind of made sense. <laughs> it, it was very <laughs> educational. And I was like, wow, it took me uh, four years of medical education and completely lost on me um all right so so
2: i do do joke and say that that um the video where there, you know this anesthesia versus ortho yeah yeah there's a fracture i need to fix it yeah that's that's actually what the medicine person says there's a fracture it needs to be fixed right the ortho person it's got 27 different variables that i've never even considered
1: they don't get enough credit
2: it's true actually i I really believe that they may not know how to do DVT prophylaxis but they sure do know how to fix a hip
1: yeah All right. So Addison disease, I would say one little fact to remember, though, about Addison's disease for step one is that, yes, it is usually an autoimmune condition, but uniquely, it can also be caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. That's, a, I think, a, a concept that shows up a lot in the step one review literature, <laughs> if you will.
2: Most common U.S. is autoimmune. Most common worldwide is disseminated TB. Don't forget about Neisseria meningitis. Waterhouse Friedrichs. and
1: Yeah, look at that.
2: Look, you, I, you pull that one out of your head? You I did, that actually. Yeah. nice. No, that, so that one tons of
1: Useless information that sticks with you <laughs> from med school. All right, let's let's uh, let's move on. 24-year-old man comes to the clinic for his annual checkup. His past medical history is non-contributory. Blood pressure is found to be 152 over 78. The measurement is repeated and shows a similar result. Physical examination shows no other abnormalities. Lab tests show hypokalemia and low plasma renin activity. Which of the following conditions is the most likely cause of these symptoms?
2: Well, it's hyperaldo, so let's find out which one. <sighs> See, you know, like... Hypertension, having... hypokalemia. <laughs>
1: <Boom>. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so if, if you weren't a board-certified internal medicine physician, though, you'd have to read each of these, and you might, you might
2: struggle. Yeah, let's that, read, read them out anyway and go through them because I think it's going to help explore the, the system that I use to make that answer so concrete and obvious to me.
1: All right. So A, aortic coarctation, B, carcinoid syndrome, C, primary hyperaldosteronism, D, unilateral renal artery stenosis, or E, extracellular fluid contraction or volume contraction, we could say.
2: I actually have a, a video in the intern content, which explains this pretty easy, pretty well. Um, I used a Katrina switch, right? So you just draw a picture of a glomerulus. Yeah. At the JG apparatus, I've got a switch. Only it's a Katrina switch. In my house after Hurricane Katrina, when I bought it, a couple of light switches were just down, was on, and up was off. And <laughs> rather than remembering all, yeah, not, not like the, the ones that have to be congruent to be off, and if they're, they're different, then they're on. Like just one light switch, down yeah. was on, up was off. I mean, typical uh, Katrina flip. And I use that system t- to measure the flow through the nephron. And if the flow is high, it pushes it to off. And it, if there's it not infl- a lot of flow through the system, it falls to on. the uh, JG apparatus makes renin. Uh, renin uh, ter- makes ang2. Ang2 tells a little fat hat on top of the kidney to make aldosterone. Aldosterone's job is to reabsorb sodium and kick out potassium. And then that's so the aquaporin channels can be inserted under ADH's influence to reabsorb water, water follows salt. So as I I heard this question, I said, okay, well, um, it, it's a, I, I actually wasn't sure what it was at first, but it was obviously hypertension. And as soon as you said hypo-K, I mean, that's a buzzword, hypertension and hypokalemia is hyperaldosteronism. But then the question actually got really good because it gives you a couple of reasons why there might actually be a bunch of reasons why there is a hyperkalemia. So the idea with this system is if the flow to the kidney is low for whatever reason, then the switch will fall to on, which means renin will go up, ang2 will go up, aldosterone will go up. And... Sodom's ribs or potassium is lost in the urine. So hypertension and hypokalemia only tells me that it's an aldosterone-mediated process. Yeah. Aortic coarctation is going to prevent blood flow to get, to get to the renal arteries. Most coarctations that people survive are, are past the great arteries but are usually above the renal arteries. So our aortic coarctation could be a secondary hyperaldosteronism. So that would actually – like the blood flow to the kidneys will be reduced. And so re- renin will go up, and will go up, aldo will go up. The same thing is true of renal artery stenosis, right? You have a decreased flow to one of the kidneys. The flow is down, so the switch is on, renin up, bench 2 up, aldo up. So you have another secondary hyperaldosteronism. And even extracellular fluid contraction, I think what that's saying is it's a volume contraction being volume down. Yeah. That too would put the flow through the system to be low, so the system would be on, renin up, bench 2 up, aldo up. That's another cause of secondary hyperaldosteronism.
1: So you're looking, those three answer choices all... Have in common that they would, Hyperaldo. yeah, they would mm-hmm. increase or upregulate or whatever the renin angiotensin system.
2: Right. But if you didn't know that system really well, you, you, and all you learned was hypertension, hypokalemia, as I did, all of them are right. Like all of them are hyperaldosterone states. The thing that separates this question to primary hyperaldosteronism is the renin, right? The low renin means that it must be a primary hyperaldosteronism because aldosterone is increasing the return of fluid and an NG2 is increasing. Well, aldosterone, it's blood pressure and fluid thing, So the flow to the kidneys increased. So the flow switch is turned to off. So renin should be off and aldo should be low, but it is inappropriately elevated. And even in a test taking strategy, If I saw three options where secondary hyperaldosteronism, I know they're all wrong. Correct. They all mean the same thing, unless they gave me like a brewy in the abdomen or – uh, for the for some specific mm-hmm. differentiating, like or, an yeah, essential
1: piece yeah. uh, within the vignette to rule something in. And you have to look at those things. Those are like the not buzzwords, but patterns or like highlights of a, a disease that you just have to kind of know intimately to to and be on the lookout for within reading the vignette. But all right, what about carcinoid? Like, uh, what are some good things to know about carcinoid for step one?
2: For step one, I mean, 5 HIAA in the urine. Um, carcinoid comes in the lung and the liver, I'm sorry, lung and the gut. It only causes problems when it metastasizes to the liver. Since the lungs and the liver break down carcinoid, when you have a intestinal carcinoid, it's going to release whatever it does into the bloodstream. It's going to cause right-sided cardiac fibrosis broken down by the lungs, so you don't get anything problem with the left side. And if you have a lung carcinoid, you're going to release the stuff into the bloodstream back to the pulmonary vein into the left side. So a pulmonary carcinoid will have left side of cardiac fibrosis. And then the carcinoid stuff um, is flushing, flushing diarrhea and cardiac fibrosis. I'm yeah. not sure how it influences the renin system at all, actually.
1: I guess maybe stimulated to increase vascular tone, i yeah, yeah, because you let's see, you're flushing. You have like t- hypotension, tachycardia, you're volume depleted, diarrhea.
2: Yeah, that might be a really a stretch to get you to secondary aldo- aldosteronism. That would be a <laughs> really good question, actually. No, that yeah, so yeah. All of those are, are some way of secondary hyperaldosteronism, and they gave you a low renin, so you could flip the renin to be elevated, and then you'd have to use the physical exam yeah. to find out which one is the right answer. Correctation with the you know, blood, low blood pressure on the feet, cold feet. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with a brewery extracellular fluid contraction, some reason to be volume down and flushing cardiac fibrosis and and wheezing to be carcinoid. And that would be, this is a great question because you can mold it so easily. All of these answers can be made correct if you change.
1: One or two little things. You know, there's, there are people all around thinking of like like, really like, oh, man, this this would make a great question. So on this podcast, hopefully um, you are hearing two years before the types of questions that will be on board exams that hopefully the uh, NBME writers will just steal from us.
2: This is exactly why I tell people that they need to read the answer explanations and really engage the answer choices beyond what whatever QBank They've gotten has told them like that exercise we just went through not only helps you figure out the test taking strategy, but also solidifies the illness script. And yeah. if you didn't know correctation was supposed to have rib notching and lower extremity hypotension, well, now you learn it. And so like that's actually this is one of the reasons why I say board exams matter. I think that the USMLE is an awful way to place people into residency. But studying for the USMLE, even the step one, forces you to learn stuff you really don't want to learn, but you, you really should know. So that when you're done, yeah, you don't remember exactly what happens with thyroglobulin, MIT, DIT, T3, T4, but you know, thyroglobulin's made in the thyroid and it also makes T4, right? So like, by the time you recoil from the extreme amount of learning that you've done, your illness scripts are pretty well made and you can actually use that clinically or to grow your knowledge in whatever field you choose. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, that's part one of endocrine. We'll be back with part two in a couple days. So, check back, and as always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to share the Study Smarter series on social media. Just share an episode, tag at Boards Insider on Twitter or inside the boards on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll be entered to win the Study Smarter Contest, which is going to be a $50 Amazon gift card at the end of the series. And thanks to James from 2 o'clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is the Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check 2 o'clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at 2 com or on iTunes or
0: Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination. Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.